Hello, everyone, and welcome to BookNet's podcast. I'm Krista Mitchell, the marketing associate here at BookNet Canada. In the latter part of 2015, BISG, backed by extensive stakeholder feedback, found a demonstrated need to give YA and teen content its own BISAC classifications, separate from juvenile. With the 2015 code list, two new top-level trees have been added for young adult fiction and young adult nonfiction to address young adult audiences. Up until 2014, such content was largely being classified under a limited set of juvenile fiction and juvenile nonfiction headings. YA and YA nonfiction now have much larger sets of classification codes, up to 446 new codes, actually. All in all, it's definitely a change for the better. To talk about new codes and classification overall, Tom Richardson, BookNet's own keeper of the data, will be joining me today. Let's get into it. I don't know if you want to introduce yourself or if you want me to introduce you. Just don't call me a rock star, please. <laughs> Was that the worst? <laughs> okay. I'll avoid... Uh, what, whatever you like to do. I All mean, right. I can introduce myself as necessary. I mean... We'll do one where you introduce yourself and then... We'll see how I we feel say about it. I will say I'm Tom Richardson, BookNet Canada's bibliographic manager. Perfect. <laughs> okay. And so today we're going to talk about the YA BISAC codes, which are new. So how many how many codes did they introduce? Do you remember? Not exactly. 460-odd, something like that. And how does that work when they, they just directly map them from the old juvenile codes, or did they come up with brand new ones for the YA? Largely, they are the old juvenile codes um, basically made into YA ones. But, you know, there's clearly some adjustments. I mean, some codes don't exist. Uh, you know, toilet training has not been moved into YA. And, it's not relevant. <laughs> and then there were some juvenile codes that were simply removed, you know, like things like pregnancy or mm-hmm. or that, that level of stuff just went into YA, that, that type of thing. So, I mean, it's not uh, 100% on anything. And there are, I think there's probably a few unique codes been added. Why wouldn't they? There's one that I thought was, like, particularly interesting, which was the YA code for magic realism. Like, they don't seem to have a juvenile code for magic realism, and I'm wondering why that is, I guess. And juvenile magic realism would just be fantasy. Uh, do you really think that, you know, like, people under 12 are reading <laughs> magic realism? In, in, in a way? <laughs> they might be. <laughs> well, I, it, exactly. I mean, like, magic realism strikes me as being a very adult, you know, like, mm-hmm. breakout. Now, it probably makes sense to add it to, ju- to young adult. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it probably has any more meaning to juvenile than a juvenile thing on concepts where you're talking about books about red and colors and numbers <laughs> would have for, for YA. I mean, you know, there are con- conceptually, okay, dystopian fiction, YA. Mm-hmm. Magic realism, same. Right. So when the committee was deciding to break out these YA codes, they were basing them mostly on the age ranges? Well, okay. (laughs) Use is going to prove the point. Okay, there is some sort of like thing where there's a recommendation for a specific age range. But, uh, you know, conceptually, it's not that difficult to imagine that there is a book for 14-year-olds that might really still be considered juvenile Mm -hmm. without it really being made into a YA classification. It's, right. it, its age range is very approximate, and juvenile books are famous for everything being um, bits and pieces. Just, just they're, they're very hard to classify. I mean, you, you have students who are, like, reading well above their age, and generally speaking, those students are conceptually above their age as well. Right. I mean, that's why they're reading at that level. 
uh, and then there are uh, you know, 17-year-olds who read the, you know, the grade four or five level. Uh, now, they are probably conceptually closer to their own age than they are to their reading level. But, you know, still, uh, yeah. you know, so you would have YA books designed for readers at a certain, at an age level that's well below YA. Right. And you may have, you know, like uh, juvenile books designed for a reading level well above their age range, you know, so that the concepts could be held, held down to an appropriate level, but the reading and the words might be up to the right level. Right. But. So, like, one of the cases that I'm most interested in discovering is a series like Harry Potter, where you start off solidly in middle grade and move into young adult concepts. How would the Harry Potter books be classified? Would their codes change as the books aged up? Or would they all be classified as one series with one code? Having a clue. Having a clue. <laughs> I mean, uh, uh, however, I mean, you know, like the, uh, exactly. I mean, it would be however it makes the most sense. Okay, going back to first principles. Right. <laughs> um, a good place to start. Is in general, I mean, not in general, specifically BISAC requests that every book be assigned a main subject. And the main subject, you know, like, should not be violated. So if you classify the main subject as juvenile, it is a juvenile book. If it's a YA book, it's a YA book. And if it's an adult book, it's an adult book. And you shouldn't mix those two up. So you shouldn't have secondary codes from different areas and things like that. And the, the logic behind that is, well, multifold. One part of the logic would be if you approach a retailer, they have a buyer. The buyers are normally broken up by subject and age and, right. and that, that type of classification. So when you start crossing those boundaries, it's like you're trying to present the book to multiple buyers. Mm -hmm. And generally speaking, the retailers only want one buyer to right. have the book represented to them. So that simplifies things. Uh, the other part of it is is equally like that, which is that what you don't want... Okay. It's perfectly reasonable for an intelligent publisher to be able to classify a book that is both adult and YA and do it coherently and reasonably. However, experience in the, in the industry shows that the number of people who do it badly outnumbers the ones who do it doing it well. What's an example of a way that it's done poorly versus a way that it could be done correctly? Well, I mean, I, I, no, I mean, the, the, the solution is, is that... <laughs> don't do it at all. Don't do it at all. Right. It's exactly <laughs> it. Is it, that it is far, far better to provide a very specific code to the book and only to sort of like segment it into like one spot and then to rely on the fact that other professionals actually deal with this material and will do the appropriate thing with it. At, you so know, like, reaching out to an audience that the book might not be intended for, like crossing audiences should be done from a marketing perspective and not a data perspective. Well, okay, yeah, exactly. And, and that's kind of one of the, 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 the main points that is, is that different parts of the metadata have a different intended audience. Um, and while BISAC codes are arguably an important part of marketing, they are really intended for the professionals in the right. industry. They are intended to be used by librarians who classify the book. They are intended for, to be used by booksellers to, to classify the book. So you, they, they, are, they are the area within the, the metadata that is most likely to be changed by the end user before it's presented to the consumer. And the reason for that is is the retailers 
and librarians and everybody else reserves the right to understand their market directly. And they are catering to specific markets uh, and may have legitimate disagreements with the, the publisher on, on things or, uh, or, or may not. But I mean, it's one of the aggravations of publishers is that people run around changing these codes, but there's reasons they're being changed. So you should understand that these are really being used by other professionals and orientate yourself towards them. So again, going, going back to why wouldn't you want to classify it across multiple sub-like levels is because an, a professional will look at this and you know, in the case of Harry Potter, how do they deal with the fact that the early books are like maybe for a younger age than the older books? Well, they market them within their, their domain properly. Right. They're not idiots, I mean, <laughs> and they don't need to be guided all that much. There are other areas within the, the metadata where you can provide guidance, um, but the area where you really need to be thinking that you're providing information to, to professionals is audience, audience range, age range, interest range, complexity, which is basically reading level, and subject. Those are the areas that are intended primarily to be used by professionals for the classification of their book, and not specifically oriented towards uh, the consumer. Now, keywords, keywords keywords would be a spot where, you know, like you go, can go a little bit crazier and you can provide a list of like how you perceive the consumer as having an entry point to your book. Right. So that's like kind of the bridge between like the professional side and the other side. And keywords should be used as, you know, terms that the a consumer is going to go onto the site and search for a book by. Right. So. so the keywords and the subject codes are utilized wildly differently, but should still overlap in some ways? Well, okay, I mean, uh, <laughs> uh, you got a book. The book's got a subject. Right. The book has an audience. I mean, all these things are things that people have to know about. Mm -hmm. I mean, the editor is working to produce, I mean, particularly in the juvenile and YA things, you're producing a book for a specific audience and age range and reading level and all these things. And if you don't know what those things are, then you probably shouldn't be producing <laughs> a professionally done YA juvenile book. So, you know, like these are all part and parcel of how it's done. Uh, so, you know, it's not like an author necessarily has to like know absolutely what they're, do they're doing in these things, but authors should be writing for those sorts of things right. and their editor should be guiding them and helping them in that, that prospect. Mm -hmm. The marketing should be like, like geared to it as well. I mean, so yeah, exactly. The, the professionals, the book professionals metadata on these areas should be specific, clear and unambiguous because right. They should be all matching to the intent of the book going back to the editor. It has to be taken seriously, mm -hmm. um, and it's probably not something best left to somebody who doesn't know anything more than the catalog copy of the book. Um, it probably shouldn't be left to an intern. <laughs> um, and you know, like people within the organization should really be taking these primary points kind of seriously. I mean, on one level, the answer to the problem of BISAC doesn't have the right code for my book or Thema doesn't have the right code for my book or otherwise should be answered by are there actually enough books in the supply chain to make this worth highlighting for a retailer? If the answer is yes, then someone should be contacting their local people who would be responsible for this thing to 
actually get the right code into BISAC. So if you're an editor and you're frustrated by the BISAC codes, it's your lack of involvement in the supply chain that actually creates the problem. So, you know, contact BISG or BookNet Canada and see what you can do about getting the codes right. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's... <laughs> step one. <laughs> step one is pay attention to what you're doing and regard it as being a reason for your involvement. Now, looking at it from the point of view of, uh, of BISG, and uh, like the setting up the BISAC codes, and to some degree the same holds for Thema is, is that what do you want as a goal for a subject heading for retailers? Well, first of all, it has to be relatively friendly and not, and not expert used, which basically means like the librarian market um, actually provides training to librarians as to how to use the subject classification systems. Um, I'm sorry, Seneca College doesn't, okay? It, it, so this is not being used by experts. So I'm sort of contradicting myself by, by saying that it's a non-expert system when we want it to be used professionally, but you know, expert, professional, there, there, there's some differences in, in, in intent here. So what you want to have is something that's relatively simple, uh, that doesn't have like an infinite capacity for subject headings that should be what is selling today at any given time. That's what a retail, retailer-driven system is trying to do. So it should more or less, well, metaphorically speaking, fit the shelves of a bookstore or the online subject things of it. You can get too, if it's too granular, it's no good. And if it's too broad, people can't find the book that easily. So each year, uh, BISG culls the listing of, of, codes and add some, and, and generally speaking, about 50 codes a year kind of change uh, in terms of new ones. Uh, there's probably a similar number dropped. Um, so maybe 100 codes a year kind of get updated. Not that much. This year is exceptional because, you know, like the, the, the list of changes is like 550. That's right. And it's like a whole new subject right. category. So. And, right. So, I mean, th this is a whole subject. It doesn't usually work that that much. Why is it being done? It's straightforward enough. We were making money selling YA books. Therefore, we needed a subject system that was appropriate to the money we're making. Why do you think that didn't happen when New Adult really boomed at first? Because for a long time, it seemed like New Adult was the thing. Like, they were selling like crazy at first. They sort of tapered off and leveled out a little bit now, but... Well, I would disagree that, that the capacity wasn't there. I mean, there has always been a specific audience code for YA. Mm -hmm. YA for the 20 years has had its own code as an audience code. It was perfectly possible to use a juvenile code right. with a YA subject heading, uh, with a YA audience code, and have exactly, pretty much exactly, what BISG has developed, which is the juvenile codes largely transferred over to the YA mm -hmm. thing. Except that people actually didn't do the work in order to use consistent audience codes to enable that to actually work. Mm -hmm. So actually what this represents is a workaround for the fact that people don't support audience codes properly, so that they're forcing them to use an, uh, a subject code to prevent, to circumvent the audience code, which they haven't been done using properly. In a way, it just sort of like adds clarification to the whole system. Well, use properly. I mean, yeah. exactly. I mean, one one of the main main sorts of points that one might want to make here is if if your audience code and your new YA codes don't match, you you. 
you've just contradicted yourself. It's stupid. Uh, and going again back to how a professional would like use your data, and a librarian will go up and say, I need YA books. They'll go to the audience code and say, they have a code for, for YA. I'll do a search based on it. Mm -hmm. That search might be done two ways. They, they might do, give me all the codes that match it, or depending upon what they're actually looking for, they might say, uh, show me everything but something else, right? So, um, and because there are two ways of doing it is another reason why you don't want to start mixing your codes up. Because if you select provide two codes for any, any particular book, and someone uses that alternate way of you know, deselecting, like removing, right. you actually wind up being lost from two lists instead of one, right? Right. Okay. So again, there's other, you know, if you look at how things are being used and the uh, used, then you kind of have to sit down and, and, and think through what you're creating. I, I can give a concrete example. Sure. Um, somebody asked BookNet to produce a list of business books. So I can tell you that if you take the active list of business books that we have in BiblioShare right now, simply by subject category, from going to the main subject category, um, that there are about 50,000 active titles, slightly under. Um, of those books, approximately 8,000 of them had both a uh, there's two ways in, in Onyx 2.1 file you can provide that, right. that piece of data, right? Okay, one of the problems. You can use the main subject composite, which is the new way, and then there's an old way, which just is the simple way that most people use. Okay, so some people provided both pieces of data. Okay. If you eliminated the matches, because that would be how you want to see right. it, it's only one main subject, so therefore they should match. If you eliminate the, uh, the matches, you were still left with 2,000 books that provided different main subject codes. So they provided two main subjects within their thing, depending upon right. main and the old version, new version. Who knows what they were meaning? Who knows why <laughs> they did that? But they did. So so that that's kind of like really confusing. Mm -hmm. um, you then, because I understood the data well enough, I then carefully actually took the, the list for the additional subjects. And before I you know, match them onto the data that I was I was creating. I actually sat down and I, I took the list that I had already created and, and eliminated the those codes right. from, from 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 the list. So I, I didn't really keep track of the numbers, but you know, probably I eliminated another third of the data as being duplication. Okay. Um, I, you know, yeah. All, <laughs> all I'm basically uh, basically saying saying is is that none of that should be there. Yeah. This way. With more, with better classification tools, you get more accurate results, and right. the better and, and, retailers can put your books in the hands of the intended audience, which is really why this change was made to begin with. But again, a librarian doing that that type of activity, and librarians do that, that type of activity, would sit down and basically, by about this point, say. The data is crap. <laughs> I have no idea what's going on anymore. <laughs> and they would start start basically refusing to do it. And they would then go back to their own databases, their own, own data sets, which are clean, coherent, and usable to, right. to their needs. Which is, I mean, we've had real reluctance by the library and community to, to really use Onyx. And there's been a level of education involved in, in getting them trained up to it be, so that they could actually take advantage of 
all of the depth. They want the depth that the publishers are providing. They want the consumer consumer information that the publishers are providing, but they are driven crazy by the the fact that you can't just search by audience code and get your YA list. Right. You can't do it this way. If you do it that way, you'll find contradictions. Uh, at a webinar uh, just recently, I, I read a, an email from a retailer who was doing the same thing. They were aggregating d data from multiple sources and trying to isolate the YA books because they wanted to match them onto the new YA codes. Guy's a little crazy I mean, in, in some ways because I don't know why a retailer would be doing this. Why not wait for the publisher to do it for you? But okay, leaving aside that, and he had exactly the same problem. The data he had wasn't usable for the purpose. Right. You know, why do you need to pay attention? It's just you know, you're, you're creating a coherent thing audience, subject, range values, complexity. I mean, complexity in particular needs to be sort of like, in a sense, a bot. Um, reading level, Lexile, uh, there's another one which is name I'm always forgetting, Fonto. Uh, but but yeah, we're, we're the, the reading level is in a sense bought from professional sources precisely so that people know it is. Now whether or not that's worthwhile for a given publisher for a given book is like a separate thing. That's an expense, so you don't want to do it stupidly. But you know, if it's there, it should be a good quality one that, that is usable because you're providing a reading level that should be used by other professionals. So, you know, the, the age ranges, interest range, grade ranges are kind of, tend to be more approximate, but unless they're very specific and, and, and things, they are completely into the useless to, to, to the professional market to make any sense of it. You, know, you, you get past three years of a range and it's clearly just wrong. I mean, it can't be. The book can't be written out that, that well. Not unless there's a coherent sort of system where, say, you know, the, the reading level is set very low and the age level is set very high and the complexity level then supports it, where right. you're going to use a very well-designed book. Because there are publishers who do publish those sort of special readers for right. older ages that have sort of a lower reading level. Those exist. Right. Or you might be trying to highlight the fact that, you know, like there are... Um, Adult books that, that reach down into young adult. Yes. That's a different from any mm -hmm. young adult book that reaches up into the adult market. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like a, you know, a, a book, an adult book that has legs for young adults is a different thing than a young adult book that, you know. So uh, you, you can kind of start seeing, seeing the, subtle, the subtleties of, of that. And other professionals in the industry can make sense of that, that level but only if you produce the data in a, in, in a usable format for right. them. So overall, I think what we're making a case for here is like richer, more robust data coming in, and the new subject codes assist with that, but you have to have sort of all of the pieces together. Right. And conveniently enough, BISG did a white paper called on keywords, which actually put all the pieces together. So keywords, which is its primary focus, was a sub-thing, but conveniently enough, it mentioned the fact that you know the subject codes were in there, the audience codes were in there, all these other things, and linked all the pieces together. So you could read out how to create good quality keywords and see how all the various parts in, in this one lovely little white paper, you know, about 15 pages long, mm -hmm. lots of white space, not too bad, as these things go very readable. We can link that in the description for the podcast, actually. We'll just link that down below, and if people are interested in taking a look at that, they can certainly go right from this podcast to check it out. Are we done? <laughs> I think we're done. That was okay. pretty good. That was like...
That about does it for the podcast. Thank you for joining me today, Tom. To learn more about what we do at BookNet, you can find us at booknetcanada.ca. We gratefully acknowledge the financial support of the Government of Canada through the Canada Book Fund. And of course, thanks to you for listening. We'll see you next month.